right? I don't know if any of us was here for uh, yesterday, um, uh, or at least for most of it. I, I give a bit of a recap of what, what we did. Uh, again, the conference, we are, we are putting the gospel at the center. That's, that's the theme of the conference. And so both days, today and yesterday, we're going to start with a bit of gospel theology. Because we're saying, look, if you want to put the gospel at the center and you don't even know what the gospel is, you have a problem. So we started with that yesterday. I'll say a little bit of what we said. And then after that, we looked at gospel-centered character. Am I wrong? No, gospel-centered contextualization. That is, if we have this gospel, then but the gospel has to go to a specific group of people, right? The, uh, the Philippian jailer is not like the girl who was under the uh, 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 demonization, and, and she is not like um, Lydia. And so the same gospel has to come to different people, and so the context becomes different. And if you have different context with people, you also have different context with regions and places. And so we heard about gospel contextualization, but the person that is then going to speak that gospel in this different context has to have seen the gospel work out in their lives. And so we spoke about gospel character. And then after that, we, um, we then said, all right, in a setting, especially as pastors and church planters, in the setting where we're going to put that gospel out regularly, how do we go about preaching that gospel? And that's why we spoke about gospel-centered preaching. So today we're going to start again with gospel theology, and we have two more plenaries and some, uh, many other things to talk about, and we'll have um, a panel as well. Now, yesterday I started with um, Romans chapter 1. I said, look, there are many places you can find different parts of what the gospel is. Paul never, or Peter, no one ever gives you fully. They know what it is in, at the back of their minds. They know the elements that are there. And so de depending on the context they find themselves, some of these things come out here and there. But Romans chapter 1, if you like, is probably um, where you find virtually almost all of those elements. And so we said that when Paul wanted to define it, before he defined it, he, he, he was clear that his ministry was, even though he was an apostle, called to be an apostle, but he was set apart for the gospel. That's how Paul understood. And that's how all of us have to understand. Whatever calling that we seem to have, whatever vocation in the gospel, you mustn't forget that you are set apart for the gospel. It has to be the center of our lives and the center of our ministries. Why? Because it's the center of the Bible. And so we looked at the gospel storyline, the storyline of the Bible, and saying, look, the gospel then becomes the apex, the climax of that storyline. And so the definition that we were using, um, the working definition, is that if it is good news, we're not talking about what it accomplishes or anything. We're just talking about what it is, and it's about Jesus and what he has done. And so it's the good news that the incarnate, crucified Savior, Jesus Christ, is the risen Lord and impending judge of the world. And so we said it's all about Jesus, but that there are five descriptors, five important descriptors you shouldn't forget. His incarnation, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his lordship, and then his what? His judgment, the fact that he is judge. Now, that was the, the, um, the fact, well, the definition that encompassed the subject alone. 
But then there's the objects, uh, the objects of those. And so what did that accomplish? And this is what we'll spe spend a little bit more time talking about today. But we give a, a more expansive definition, which was the, it's what God has lovingly, graciously, and decisively accomplished in, through the person of Jesus, of his incarnate son, Jesus Christ, to reconcile rebellious sinners to himself, giving them new life in the Holy Spirit, defeating the cosmic powers of evil, establishing a new community of love, with the promise of fully restoring the created order. This was accomplished in Christ's death. And if somebody asks you what the gospel, don't, you, you don't have to memorize all of this, okay? Just say it. <laughs> all right. But this was accomplished in Christ's death and resurrection. It's been administered through his heavenly reign and will finally be consummated in his impending return. As I said, we'll send all some of these, these slides, these definitions to you via email if you want them. So you don't have to feel like I need to get everything now. All right. So... The objects here are human beings and eventually the creation, the inanimate creation. And that's what I want us to dig more into today. So I start very early on with the theology uh, when you are bright and uh, not ready to sleep, okay? When you are ready to sleep, then we release Jeremiah on you, <laughs> all right? So um, today we'll be speaking about gospel benefit phases, alternative gospel models, and then we'll finish with some of those questions that I asked last uh, yesterday, four questions of what you may face in your ministries and how would you answer them from a gospel-centered perspective, okay? So with gospel benefit phases, alternative gospel models, and gospel-centered examples. All right, so let's get into the gospel benefit phases. Okay, so the gospel is the good news that... Um, uh, the, go the gospel is the good news that the incarnate and crucified Savior, Jesus Christ, is the risen Lord and impending judge of the world. So what about me? What about us? Does this mean anything to me? And the answer, of course, is yes. Because like I said yesterday, when good news is, or even bad news, when it's announced on the TV, you know that it has something to do with you. When there's something, when the economy goes south, sometimes we start thinking, well, if the dollar price rises against the Naira, you know that something is going to happen. Inflation starts coming. The price of goods start to rise. So the news itself then has its effects. But because this news is not just news, it's good news, we expect that that good news should have good effects. And the effects that it has upon the world that God has created it comes in three phases. Say three phases. Three phases through which the gospel comes. Now, it's important to think about this because when we come to, and if you think about some of those false alternative gospel definitions we talked about, it is not coming to terms with how these three phases come together. So let's talk about those three phases. It will be gospel status, gospel life, and gospel hope. Gospel status, gospel life, and gospel hope. So, first one, the gospel status. Now, time will not permit me to talk about how, um, how we apprehend the gospel, which is mainly through repentance and faith. Repentance and faith are, the two, are two sides of the same coin. And if you ever get into situations where one is emphasized, overemphasized over the other, you start running into problems. In Nigeria, what do you think we emphasize more? All right. So we leave repentance and we've taken faith. And the problem with that is that if you take one side of the coin and you don't, do, you don't take the other, eventually you have to redefine the one that you have taken. 
So faith has been redefined in our day. Faith now is about trying to believe things enough so that those things which were not now become, now they, they now come to pass. But this is not how the biblical um, uh, faith works. It has an object. The object is, comes through the gospel. So the object is Jesus Christ, right? And faith is what we use to land on Jesus. But don't forget that we were coming from somewhere before. We, had, we used to put our faith in other things, worthless idols before. What the gospel then does is that it turns you to come and put your faith in someone else. Now, that turning is what we call repentance. That is, it's not just that I say I'm not doing again a change of mind. It's a change of the heart that experiences sorrow, and that sorrow is lived out in true godly living. So when Jesus says repent and believe, there is an instance to do that, but also it follows our lives, you know, up until eternity. So but I'll just talk about, I just said those in, 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 in brief, but if you put your repent, if you, if, you sh- if you repent and believe initially, what happens to someone that repents and believes the gospel, truly repents and believes? Well, something happens to him or her. They are given a new identity by imputation. Say imputation. Now, imputation is not, first of all, infusion or injection. You know, I, I, infusion, that may sound a little bit one kind. I mean, Western people understand that. But when I say injection, all of us know that one, right? You know how injection, it's a jab, basically. So you go to the hospital, there's something wrong with you, you have malaria, they say, oh, come, come, come. Yeah, and they inject something in you. Something enters you, and then because of what is inside you, a change starts to happen to you. You understand that? Now, this is not the way we receive the gospel. Something is not infused into us. Now, that would be Roman, a Roman Catholic model. But neither is it, sorry, my Pentecostal brothers, it's not by impartation as well. It is by what? Imputation. What does that mean? Well, the best way to put it, someone say forensic. Yes, but let me, uh, let me explain. Most of us here, some of us are married, right? When you got married, hopefully you didn't just get married in your house. You know, that's another thing. You went to the registry, and, um, or maybe you had a church that had the license to do it. And at some point in the, in the, in the, in the service, the person that, was, that had the authority said, by the powers or the authority that is vested in me, I do what? I proclaim you, I proclaim you, man and, now after that proclamation, what happens? At least we Christians will say, oh, if you are not sleeping together before, then now all, everything is, everything is, uh, everything is allowed. Okay, not everything, everything, if you're saying everything is allowed, not everything is not allowed. But some things are allowed, right? They can now go home together. They came, not together, but now they can go home together. Something definite has happened to them. But do you know what hasn't happened to them? When you said they are now husband and wife, nothing inside them happened. Maybe you're a man of God that's very powerful. I said, I proclaim you man and wife. <laughs> For the less powerful among us, usually nothing happens. Nothing happens inside them. And yet something very definite has happened to them. 
they are no longer the same. They have a new status. It's a declarative status. God has changed their status. It's also like the same, maybe you want to go to the U.S. and you have to go and queue outside the American embassy. Some of us will never know what that is, have you? You queue. Before that time, if you got on, in fact, they won't allow you in the plane. But let's even say you're able to do magumagu and you got into the plane. When you get to the immigration at the American, in, the, in America, and you show your passport and there is nothing there, what will happen? <laughs> Boss, you're going back. You didn't have the entry right into the country. But then if you had a successful application and they stamped a particular thing called a visa on your, on your passport, what does that mean? You have a new status that allows you entry into the country. But when you received the visa, did you all of a sudden grow two heads? I know some of you start talking to your wives anyhow because you feel like, now nah, nah, I have visa. I'm a big man. Well, even that self, the fact that you can you feel a little bit more uplifted says that something has happened to you. But that won't stop you from getting malaria. It, mosquito bites you. Do you understand? It's not an impartation. It's not an infusion. It's by imputation, the change of a new status, something definite has happened to you. This is what we receive by faith. That someone who was once a sinner has now changed his status. Now, in Nigeria, we have something called um, National Youth Service. If you go to the university, it's, it, it traces back to we had a civil war in the uh, early 70s, and it was, there was a lot of ethnic uh, tension. So what they did was the government came up with, I think, a good policy, not run, run well, but a good policy, where after your university, you are posted to a different part of the country that you do not work, that you are not from. You get to learn the people you serve there for one year, and then you return back to your place. And it, hopefully it bonds you to different places in the, in, the, in the nation, and that would ease off the tension. But there is a three-week camp before. It's a kind of paramilitary camp that you go through, and you know it's run by soldiers. And they do many different things. They take us through drills. You march. You do all of those things. And there's one thing they always all say. They will say something like, the soldiers will say, copper, copper what? That's really basically, they're saying the coppers, that's the people, they should stand at attention. So we say copper, shun. I want to introduce you to what we call the gospel shun. You know the gospel shun? Shun. The gospel has about eight shuns in this phase. Or at least I'll tell you about eight. Eight shuns in this phase that if I receive... Jesus Christ by faith, repentance and faith, when this new status has come to me, it describes it with different metaphors that we can call this gospel shown. And we'll take a couple of scriptures to see that. So first one, one status that change that happens to you, first one is that enemies become friends. That comes through what we call reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new, the new creation has come. The old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of Reconciliation. Do you see? The gospel at this point is called 
the message of reconciliation. Why? Because it gives you a new status. Once we were enemies of God, but if any man is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. So something new happens to him. He's now been reconciled. The enemy has become a friend through putting his faith in Christ. Another one, change of status, is that the guilty become righteous. The guilty become righteous. That happens through another metaphor that we can call justification. Justification. Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This takes a metaphor of the law court. You, have you are guilty because of your sin. But now you have been made right. You've been made innocent. Now you have peace as a result of what Jesus Christ did in the gospel, but apprehended through faith. But the metaphor he uses here is that you have been made right. You have been made just. You are now justified. Justification. A third one is, in the family metaphor, is when a servant becomes a son. That we call, help me, adoption. Galatians 3 verse 26. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God. How? Through faith. A child, a servant now becomes a son. How? Because of what Jesus had done, but that we apprehend through faith. How many insurance have we done now? Three. And let's go to the fourth one. And sometimes I think we, 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 we make mistakes with this one. The sinner has now become a saint. The sinner has become a saint through what we call sanctification, or Pentecostals will call consecration. The sinner has become a saint. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 9 to 10. Because most times when we think, we say, oh, be holy, be holy. Let us, uh, you know, uh, without holiness, no one will see God. But listen to how we become holy. Then he said, speaking about Jesus, here I am. I, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will that Jesus said I've come to do, that will that Jesus has come to do, and by that will we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. In fact, that's one way Paul normally used to speak to Christians. He called them saints. And you look at the people that he's calling saints, you're like, really? <laughs> because he just said they are saints, and now these people are always fighting against each other. Why? Because it was a new status that was given to them. He wasn't first addressing them by how they behaved. He was addressing them by the faith that they had. And that faith, Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 6, such were some of you, but now you have been justified. You have been sanctified. You have been washed. This is in the metaphor of the temple, what we can call a cultist metaphor. What happens in the temple? Most religions actually have this. So we are washed, we are sanctified. Through faith, we are made holy. Not because we behaved holy, but because Christ himself was holy. And we are in Christ. God imputes the status and the righteousness of Christ to us. So that's sanctification or consecration. Oh, that's eight. No, it's going to be seven. Five. The devil's possession 
and Pentecostals say this one more, I think, than others. Devil's possession becomes God's possession through what we can call redemption. Ephesians 1 verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of his grace. In who? Jesus Christ. We have been bought once we were under the power of the prince of this world. And now, all of a sudden, we do not belong to him because we belong to one. You are not your own. Christ has bought you with his blood. And that, we can say, we have been bought from the market is a marketplace metaphor. We have been redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, not with the blood of bulls and goats. Number five. Oh, that shows that you guys are following. But I like the way you guys did it. It was very respectful. Was it six? Ah, are you not counting? <laughs> All right, F six. Slaves become free people. Slaves become free people. How? Through what we can call liberation. Galatians 5 verse 1, it is for freedom that Christ has done what? Set you free. Because before we were enslaved by our passions, we were enslaved by sin. We were not really our own. We were walking in a particular way. But now Christ has given us what? Freedom. Now, freedom doesn't mean freedom to do anything you like. Because there's freedom from something and there's freedom to something. Right? So freedom is not the absence of restrictions. Freedom is the ability to flourish under the right restrictions. Do you understand me? What was the problem with slavery in Egypt? The sla problem with slavery in Egypt was not that they had a master. And it's not that they were told what to do. It was that the rules that they were given would never allow them to flourish as human beings. Let me give you one example that we all, we all um, um, identify with. Let's say that you are this kind of person that says, I don't like anybody telling me what to do. I don't like anyone telling me what to do. I'm an adult. I'm a man. People just tell me what to do. I don't like it. I live by my own rules. All right, no problem. Now, if you go out to the main road there, especially on the express, there's something there called traffic light, right? Now, traffic light restricts you. You know that. It does. So let's say you go with your libertarian free self. I'm not going to obey any traffic lights. We all should be allowed to be free to do what we like. Well, if they remove the traffic lights, what's going to happen? We are going to suffer another bondage. You know what it's called? Traffic. If they remove the traffic lights, you will find out that you are truly not free. Because traffic will not allow you to move. Traffic lights are giving us right rules for us to be truly free. So freedom is really about having the right restrictions for us to flourish to do the things that we are meant to do. So when Christ makes you free, that is why Paul can say, I am also, even though I'm a free man, I'm also a slave of Christ. Because you will never find freedom if you don't come under God's own yoke. Take upon me, take upon you my yoke. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Every other burden, and every other burden is a burden that Christ has not put on you. Every other burden will put you down. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And then finally, 
the condemned become saved. The condemned become saved. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9b to 10. This is what we call, sorry, this comes to what we call what? Salvation. So what, oh, you got it, right? No, they didn't hear you. You say, that's what I wanted to say. Of course, that's what you wanted to say. You didn't say it loud. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 to 10. They tell how you turn from God, uh, f- turn to God, repentance, turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait from his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from what? The coming wrath. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Or Romans chapter 5, verse 9 to 10. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, while we were God's enemies, I love this one because he just brings so many of them, right? He first tells us about the justification metaphor, then he gives us the salvation metaphor, then he gives us the reconciliation metaphor. For if we were, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Now, I see that this is just, I would say, maybe a slight readjustment. Because sometimes I hear people say that the, the gospel is justification by faith. Well, it's true. It's just not the only way it's being described. And if you only have one particular way of thinking about how we apprehend the gospel and the benefits that come to us, you will be missing so many different things. If your relationship with God is just he, he has made me righteous, I'm no longer guilty, you can start pushing the metaphor, but you won't receive the fact that you are a son. And so you will not know the familial nature of the gospel. But at the same time, you can be, in some sense, walking in a kind of slavery because you've not seen the liberation part of it. But all of this I've just said is the fact that he gives us a new status by imputation, which we receive through repentance and faith. When we receive a new status that is described in a multifaceted way, we, uh, to say we have a new fundamental identity in Christ's death and resurrection, apprehended by genuine, persevering faith. I should, again, if I had time to talk about faith, because not all faith is faith, right? If the faith doesn't go to the end, if it doesn't persevere to the end, then it wasn't genuine from the beginning. Now, that's gospel status. Now we talk about gospel life. For all who God has given a new status, the status, he gives them the power through his spirit to live new lives in the gospel. For example, remember we said in the status that we receive, we become sons through faith, isn't it? Sons through faith. I have a son. This son of mine, well, I have two sons actually, but let's take the first one. This son of mine, if that son of mine were, God forbid, let's say 20 years from now, he decided not to finish school, he dropped out, he decided to run with um, people of wrong character, he becomes an arm robber, right? My wife is not happy now, all right? Uh, let's say he does all of those things, and then he's in jail, and they tell me, well, this guy's in jail. Will he be my son? 
You sure? Why? It's my son. Because it's not my son by behavior, is it? All right. I have a second son. Let's say this second son, in contradiction, he goes to, he goes to school. He goes through all the steps of school. He finishes. Um, he starts walking with the Lord. He marries a godly woman. He raises up godly children. He is a very well, uh, good member of his church. He serves in church. But he also serves in the community as well. He does many things for orphans. Uh, he remembers my birthday, all my birthdays. He sends me and my wife gifts on our birthdays and our anniversary. Is that son more of a son to me than the other one? Do you think I'll treat them differently? Do you think I'll feel more, one of them I'll feel more, is more like my son than the other one? But are they both my sons? Okay. Because you are his son. God has sent the spirit of his son in you, crying what? Abba, Father. You see, if it was only just about a status, you can say, I have this status, but you never live like God's son. So what happens is God gives us the status, but he doesn't end there. He gives us this spirit whereby, one, is not according to feelings, but two, there is the feeling there. You see, Tofumi is my son. I say, my son. But some other times, I carry him and say, my son. When I carried him and said, my son, is he more my son than when he was standing there I didn't carry him? No, but I am feeling him as my son. There's a difference between saying the objective reality, but also the subjective reality. God takes what is an objective reality, but he then, by witness of that objective reality, he sends his spirit to make that objective reality subjective in our lives. You don't want to divorce what God has achieved objectively through Christ and what God is achieving subjectively in us. And that's why he pours out his spirit. This is really important and it's tied to this thing that we're talking about, about Jesus' reign. Jesus died, resurrected. We speak about the gospel as something that is outside of us. That is the cross and the tomb. They are outside of us. They happen irrespective of us. God sent his son. He was out there. But after his son returned, God sent what? Another one just like him. He sent his spirit. In the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, uh, born of a woman under the Lord, that we might receive the adoption of sonship. But after that, what happened? God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Jesus came, died, rose again, but to prove that he was Lord of, because he ascended into heaven, to prove that he was Lord of the world, he sent his spirit down. This is what happened on the day of Pentecost. Now, can I ask us here? I'm not, this is not a denominational anything, but I want to push some of us. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is given to every Christian. This is the fulfillment, if you like, of how God makes his people, his people within them. If you try to divorce it and say, well, 
There are some Christians that are Christians here. That's one thing. But on the other hand, here, you also have the Christians that have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. You may not actually, you may be taking, let me say, I put it this way. If you show me a, a Christian that has not been baptized in the Spirit, I will show you a bachelor that is married. You don't understand that. You don't understand. Okay. All right. If you show me a Christian that is not baptized in the Holy Spirit, I will show you a male woman. You still don't understand. Okay. There is no such thing as a male woman. There is no such thing as a married bachelor. There is no such thing as an unbaptized in the spirit Christian. You see, Peter on the day of Pentecost, what happened on the day of Pentecost? The Holy Spirit was baptized, they spoke in tongues, right? They were filled with the Spirit and they spoke in tongues. And then what happened? Then people gathered around them. And when they gathered around them, they said, oh, we hear all these wonderful things, people speaking in you know, various tongues, and we hear the wonderful works of God. And then they said, what is going on? These people are drunk. Peter said, no, let me explain what is happening to you. This is a fulfillment of something that has happened, prophecy. I will pour my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream. All of those things. And then what does he do? He connects it to the gospel. He said this thing was prophesied to happen when the Messiah suffered and he was risen. Now he has risen. He has ascended to the throne of God. And now he has poured out his spirit to prove that he was truly the Messiah. And at the end of that sermon, connected to that experience of the pouring out of the spirit, they said, what shall we do? And then he says, repent, believe, and every one of you, you will receive the gift of the Spirit. It's not, the gift of the Spirit is not there to separate certain Christians from another kind of Christian. That's why in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, he says, look, because this Spirit is given for many different things, but it's also given to us to form the church. By one Spirit have we all being baptized into what? One body. We are given the spirit. The spirit is our seal until the day of redemption. It's like this. It's like, it's like your wedding band. When he says that the foundation of the Lord stands sure that the Lord knows all as having this seal. The Lord knows all that are his. You know what? When in the Old Testament you knew a Jew, a Jewish male, by circumcision, in the New Testament you knew the people of God by his spirit being poured out. That's why he said, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Now, it wasn't determined by gender. You couldn't circumcise, they weren't circumcising the women. But now he says, both your men and your, uh, your daughters will prophesy. The same when he says, look, if you are sons, you receive the spirit of his son. Also, he says in 2 Thessalonians, if you are saints, you also receive the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. He baptizes us into, into Christ. Jesus in John chapter 7 says, Come unto me, all you who are, uh, come unto me, all you who thirst and drink. For the scripture says that out of the belly of them that flow, out of the belly of them that believe, out of the belly of them that what? Believe. Out of the belly of them that what? Believe shall flow rivers of living water. What's this water? Why do they like water so much? Ah, John tells us the interpretation. He said this, he was speaking about what? The Holy Spirit. Who had not been, because Jesus had not been, was the glorification of Jesus. His resurrection and his ascension. 
so that when Jesus ascended, after being glorified, he poured out his spirit to all those that would do what? Believe. Don't. You can distinguish the phases of the gospel, but you must not separate them. You can distinguish them, but you cannot what? Separate them. You can distinguish my name, Olufemi, from my surname, Oshunui. But as long as you have this man standing here, if you try and separate them, you'll kill me. Do you understand? They come together. Now, the Holy Spirit is then given to us for different things. When he brings the church together, right, he creates a community of love. Why? Because the fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. So that if he gives you this fruit of love, when he then gives you the ways and the, the power to serve one another, which we call what? The gifts of the Spirit. When he gives it to you, if you walk with the gifts of the Spirit in the fruit of the Spirit, you will not be fighting and dividing one another. You will work as one body. This is why 1 Corinthians 13 is in between 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14. What is 1 Corinthians 13? That chapter that he preached on people's marriages. It's all about marriage. Well, no, no, no. The love passage there is the glue that holds the body of Christ together. He gives us a metaphor of the body of Christ in 1.12, speaking about the gifts. But he's saying these gifts will only work well when they are done in love. When they are not done in love, do you know what happens? Somebody speaks in tongues, but there's no interpretation because it only edifies them. 1 Corinthians 14. But if we are thinking about love and serving one another, we know that interpretation is needed so that the body can be This is how the Holy Spirit works. Now, if you then say, is there a difference between the baptism and the filling of the Spirit? Yes. Every, spirit, every Christian is baptized in the Spirit once. But if you read Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4, you will see that the same people that were baptized in the Spirit, one was filled, in the, they were filled, they spoke in tongues in chapter 2, they were filled, they, in chapter 4, they, they ministered with boldness. That's two different things. That's why in Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, continually being filled by the Spirit. But we are only baptized in the Spirit once. Amen? Amen. Now, so that gospel life enables us, if you have received the Spirit, what do you do so that you are not mature? Don't quench the Spirit. Don't grieve the Spirit. But walk in step with the Spirit. Third benefit is gospel hope. I thought this is where I'll spend more time. I'll end up spending more time in the, phase, in the first phase. But if only in this life we have hope in Christ. If only it is in this life that hope in Christ. If only in this life we have hope in Christ, then we are all men what? Friends, please listen to me. The gospel gives us benefits in this, in this life. In this life. But please don't relegate the gospel to a timeline that only fits into this life. The greatest benefits of the gospel do not come in this life. They come in the life to come. When God sent his son to come and die and to rise from the dead, the benefits that accrue from that, his son was working on an eternal timeline. Part of the perversion of our gospel, our churches today, is that we have become too worldly. 
And when I'm into worldly, I'm not just first talking about sin. I'm saying we are working in this life alone. Our timelines is in this life. We offer no hope to people beyond this life. Now, that is a problem. So Paul can talk about, look, he says, we have the grace of God which appeared unto all men. The grace of God which has appeared unto all men, he has brought salvation. And he teaches us. So the grace of God has appeared unto all men, right? Phase one. It teaches us, this is phase two, to say no to ungodliness and to worldly lust in this present age. And to live lives that are sober. So he's not giving you that phase two, transformation. It's phase two. Phase one is about status. Phase two is about transformation. But then he says, and looking for the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, the blessed hope. That's phase three. What is it that we're looking for? What is it that he's going to give us through the gospel in phase three? Can I first tell you something a little bit controversial? Right? You want to hear something controversial? It's not going to heaven. The hope of a believer is not making heaven. Now, it's controversial because it's in the Bible. Now, I am not denying there's such a thing as going to heaven, please. All right? So no heresy here. Paul speaks about it in Philippians 1. Right? For me, um, um, to live is Christ, to die is gain. If he dies, then he can go and be with the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 4 as well, it says those who are asleep, they are with the Lord. That's about it. When Paul speaks about the hope of a believer, no, he's speaking about something deeper. And I'm not talking about deeper theology here. I, I have no time. I've spent a lot of my time before earlier in ministry, talk, you know, deep things, deep things in the book of Revelation. I have no time for those things again. But when Paul is speaking about this, let me, I'll try and put it together because there are three things there. This man here is a human being. Would you please stand? He's a human being, isn't he? He's not a trick question now. He's not, a, is he an animal? Abiyobi, <laughs> you have something to tell me. No. Is he a human being? Yes. He's a human being. He's a human being. Where does he live? Not his address. No, he's not even Lagos. In terms of the planets, he lives on earth. He doesn't live in Mars. Does he live in the spirit realm? Huh? Obi, do you live in the spirit realm? Do you, do you, fly, do you fly at night? Or else we'll turn this into a deliverance session. No, no, no. He lives here on earth, Abi. He doesn't live in the spirit realm. He doesn't live on Mars. According to what? According to him, no, I, I can testify he's in my church. I can testify about him. And I have not seen him in my dream. He hasn't visited me in my dream before. If you try it, he lives on earth. Can I tell you something? I've been saying something controversial. This one is most controversial. Human beings were created to live on earth. Do you understand? Human beings were created to live on earth. The, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You know what he started to do? Because it was, it was without form and it was void. He started to separate all the different things, day one, day two, day three. When he had separated everything, what did he then create? He created man. The final destination of man is not in heaven. The final destination of man is here on earth. Because human beings were created for 
But there's a problem. Because these human beings have rebelled against God. And if they don't turn to God, many of them will have a destination that is not with God. We call that hell. But the ones that turn to God, what happens? Do they just fly away? Because it says the meek shall inherit what? What is the promise? Well, you find the promise in Revelation chapter 8. The problem we have, in phase 1, we have a new status. In phase 2, we receive the Spirit. And then Paul says, look, even we who have the first fruit of the Spirit, we groan for the adoption to with the redemption of what? Our bodies. The problem we have is that we have not been fully adopted. You saw the adoption of status, the adoption of the Spirit, but now he's saying there is an adoption of our bodies. The problem I have is I'm still in this body. This body is not the best. So when I am looking for Christ to come as a citizen of heaven, I am looking for him to come and change my vile body and make it as unto his what? Glorious body. As human beings, the first thing that we are looking for is that we are looking for a resurrection, a change of our bodies. In the likeness of Jesus. Don't forget, there was a first man, but the first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man comes from heaven, and when he came from heaven and he fulfilled what he was meant to do, how did he go? He went through a resurrection, and then he's called the second or the final man. When we resurrect, we resurrect into his image. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of, and then you follow it later. And it shows you that, that's, that, that that image of his son is to be glorified. For those he predestined, he called. For those he called, he what? Justified. For those he justified, he what? Glorified. The spirit has not yet been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. How do we know how he was glorified? Through the resurrection. The resurrection is not a spiritual resurrection. It is a change of our bodies. If you die before Christ comes, you will go through death and you'll come through the resurrection. But if Christ comes and you are not dead, behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye. At the sound of the last trump, we will put off these mortal bodies and we will take off immortal bodies. We will put off this corruption and we will take off incorruption. For if there was a natural body, there will be what? A spiritual body. So God creates us for what he is going to do later. What is he going to do? Whatever he does to the, uh, to the, uh, the human being, he is eventually going to do to the world. What do I mean by that? Why, was the, why is the world the way the world is today? Because God created the world very beautiful, isn't it? But you see, human beings, the world he created, everything was good. He created human beings. They were very good to show you there's a connection between the human beings and the world. So that when the human beings rebelled against God, he put a curse on the world. So the creation, according to Paul in Romans chapter 8, the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope. So the creation is groaning because human beings have rebelled. Not only does it have a spiritual uh, uh, consequence, it has a psychological consequence, social consequence, but an environmental consequence. But what do you think will happen when God brings those human beings into liberation and freedom? He will also bring the creation 
into liberation and freedom. So Paul then says, subjected in the hope that the creation, now he's talking about the inanimate creation, the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains on childbirth right up until the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves will have the first fruit of the Spirit. If God, when God resurrects human beings, he's going to recreate the world. That's why when Peter says, look, people are talking about Jesus' is coming. It's not going to happen. He said, but we, according to the promise of God, we look forward to what? A new heaven and a new earth. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It was this world. So when he says, I look forward to a new heaven and new earth, he's not talking about something somewhere. He's talking about recreating this world. This is our home. The problem with our home is that our home has become messed up because we messed up because of sin. But because of the grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ, which he gives to us by grace, which we apprehend, God is going to transform us and he's going to transform this world. Heaven is not our final destination. This world recreated is. When Peter says, according to his promise, don't forget the gospel was promised beforehand in the prophets. Peter had read that in Isaiah chapter 55 and Isaiah chapter 66. I create a new heavens and a new earth. And that's what you then see in the book of Revelation, chapter 21 and chapter 22. Behold, I saw a new heavens and a new earth. In other words, we will receive bodies. David, they are seen like this. David is going to be David in eternity. And yet, David is not really going to be David. David is going to be the best version of David that he can be. David according to the image of Christ. No more curse. When you work now, you are dealing with many things. Limitations, you are also dealing with the curse. But now it says the curse has been lifted. Now your work that you will do will be so much more productive. Except there may not be any pastors and doctors here. Because there is no more crime, no more pain. No more, and there's no more sinners as well. So you, go, you all will be looking for different jobs, I'm sorry. All right? But there's one more thing. Anytime I travel, or let me, let me put it this way. If I had a new, let's say I, anytime, I, I travel alone. And I often think about home. I often think about home. In fact, Al travels more than anybody I know, right? Probably travels more than half a year. And you're often thinking about home. Imagine you traveled for a while and you got back home. And you got into your fantastic mansion, six bedrooms, plush. The swimming pool is just bubbling. Your jacuzzi is waiting for you. The gardens are plush. You go, you feel it. Wonderful food there. Everything, the TV, is just on. It's playing the right music. All, just the mood is so great. Nowhere is dirty, it's been cleaned. And you got home with all of those things, and your wife and your children were not there. How would it be? That would be your home, that would be your house. And your house will feel very, very lonely. Am I wrong? So when I'm missing home, I'm not missing the walls. I'm not missing my bed. 
I'm missing my wife. What makes my house become a home is the people that I love there. It's those people that make that home worth it. You see, everything I've described for you about the new heaven and new earth, at that point, no more curse, no more sin, no more, di- no more dying, all of those things. If that was all, I have just described hell to you. You know why? Because God is not present. What makes the new heavens and the new earth, the thing that we look forward to the most, is that it says, the tabernacle or the dwelling place of God is now with man. After I said, I saw a new heaven and new earth, then I heard a voice that said, behold, the dwelling place of God is now with man. That is a promise that has started from the book of Leviticus after they had been exiled from the garden in, 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 uh, in, um, in, in Genesis. When God told Moses, build me a sanctuary so I may dwell among my people, it was always in a form. He dwelt among them in a tabernacle. He dwelt among them in the temple until one day God came himself and they said, we have seen his glory because this God has tabernacled among us. And he said, destroy this temple, and in two days I will raise it up. He went. This was God with us, Emmanuel, the temple. But Emmanuel left. And then he sent his spirit. So God is now with us, but he's in our hearts. We've not really seen God, but we know God. And God is now in this temple of the church. But we have not fully seen God. Because no one can see God and live. But when we now come in full resurrected glory, Revelation chapter 22, verse 3 to 4. The, the, the apex of the, all the promises of God comes in this verse. We shall see his face. Oh, brothers. Every desire, every enjoyment that you think you have in this world, it all comes together when we see his face. All pleasures, because he says in, in, uh, um, in his presence there's what? Fullness of joy. At his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. But we cannot fully stand at his right hand. We can't fully stand in his presence. But when we appear fully in the image of Christ, we will see God for who he is, and we will say, holy, holy, holy. That is the hope of a believer. For us to come out in full resurrected glory, dwelling in the new heavens and the new earth, with God and his Christ forever. That is the apex of the benefits of the gospel. A new status, a new life in the Holy Spirit, but finally, resurrected existence in the new heavens and the new earth where we dwell with God and his Christ forever. Amen. So we've looked at the gospel in that regard. We've looked at the gospel in that regard. We've seen the benefits. And time has finished. And I have to rush. So I'm going to rush through my last two things very quickly. How then can you be gospel-centered? There are different ways of, 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 of building a church, building a ministry. Now, let me say, before you get to gospel-centered, let me give you five other models. And I'm going to give these models in order of uh, increasing faithfulness. All right? First one, alternative models. First one, gospel-denying churches. What is a gospel-denying church? This is church only in name, right? These are churches we cannot in any meaningful sense be called Christians. The Christian gospel is 
seen as it's seen in its historic sense as incredulous, archaic, barbaric, offensive, unsophisticated. These were people that would deny the virgin birth as a reality, the resurrection as a reality. Um, you know, the exclusivity of Jesus Christ's gospel. They don't even, you know, why are you call the church? And, you know, we have, our denomination has always been a church, so we just say it. These are gospel-denying churches, all right? There are not many like that in Nigeria, right? It's Jeremiah, Al, and uh, Toby that have to deal with that. We were okay, all right? Second, gospel-redefining churches. Aha, welcome to Nigeria. These churches use the term gospel a lot, but although we may possess the same vocabulary, we don't have the same dictionary. That is the same word, but different meanings. Some examples are the prosperity gospel. Jesus died to make me healthy and wealthy. The kingdom gospel. Jesus died and rose again to make Christians ascend to power and exercise dominion in the seven mountains of family, but you know that. Social gospel. Jesus died to identify with the trodden, downtrodden and oppressed who suffer under the unjust systems of global capitalism global capitalism, etc. The gospel is redefined. It uses the term gospel, but it's not set in any historic sense. And certain doctrines, the historic doctrines, are also denied. So, for instance, if you deny the Trinity, you can't have the gospel. You can think you have it, but you can't have it because that is the most fundamental and foundational doctrine of all our, of our Christian faith, revealing who God is. Remember how we looked at the gospel? We said God, the Father, is the one who sets the plan. The Son is the one who atones. So let me put it another way. The Father appoints, the Son atones, and the Spirit applies. So it's not just the Trinity. It's not just go to Matthew 3, chapter six, uh, Matthew 3, 16, and you saw that Jesus Christ was there. The Father said, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So the Son is there, the Father speaks, and then the Spirit descends. That is true. But if we are just trying to do that, we are just trying to prove text. You see the Trinity at work in creation. You see the Trinity at work in revelation. You see the Trinity at work in salvation. If you don't have God as revealed himself, you can't really have the gospel. Or if you deny both the humanity and the divinity of Jesus Christ, you don't truly really have the gospel as well. Far too many pastors don't even think about things like this. It's more like oh, all this doctrine that divides and all. We just want to help people. You can't help people without God's power. And the power of God is in the gospel. But the gospel of God is held together by this foundational doctrine. If you don't know them, get to know them. Third, now gospel assuming churches. Now, gospel assuming churches are fine. These will be churches that will not deny the gospel. They will not deny any orthodox doctrine. Thank God for that. They don't deny the gospel. The only problem is they don't preach it. They hardly do. You'll find on their statements, on their church website, statement, orthodox statements of faith, but it has little bearing in the church life. The gospel is usually given to people via a short confession of prayer, and then, all right, now you're saved. Now let's talk about Christian discipleship. Let's talk about leadership. Let's talk about how you can be a better father and a better worker. Because those are the very important things. And the pastors that do this, they sell bestsellers. 18 steps to being a fantastic husband. That's what you learn. I've been in churches where on a Sunday we have five steps to financial management, effective financial management. I say, that was so helpful. It was helpful for you in this world. 
become, but not the world to come. I'm not saying you can't even pre- talk about that if you have some argument, your church can't do something like that. Please don't do it on a Sunday when we are gathered to worship. Let somebody in your church, not you, pastor, let somebody in the financial sector do it on a, on a Wednesday and equip them. But not when we worship. Now, if you ask that, do you believe in the resurrection? Of course I do. Do you believe in the resurrection? Of course I do. They believe in all of those things. It just has little bearing. You see, because, you know, those things are not, they don't, they don't affect, they're not helping people now. We need, to, we need to help people. Helping people today and not helping them eternally is no help at all. Four, gospel-affirming churches. Now, this is even better. This will be churches that will hold the gospel in high esteem, but the gospel is mainly seen for evangelistic purposes. So the gospel is only proclaimed at evangelistic programs at church or when church members go on evangelistic outreaches to the community. They would say the gospel is important, it's just that it is segmented from the very life of the church. The gospel is what we use to bring people into the church, you see. So on the Sunday when you now want to bring the gospel is for people who are not saved. Now it's good, but this is not how Paul, Jesus, Peter sees the gospel function in the church, but gospel-affirming churches. And five, gospel-proclaiming churches. Once again, like gospel-affirming churches, the historic gospel is held in very high esteem. But more than even the gospel-affirming churches, this gospel is proclaimed every week in church. The pastor shapes his weekly sermon to always include an altar call. Church members are constantly reminded about the need to call lost sinners to repentance. That is all great, and we are not condemning that at all. If you are one of those, God bless you. Continue. You just have to do more. You see, the church, uh, however, the gospel is seen as the entry point into Christianity. And that's not really the way the gospel should just be. And plus, the presentation of the gospel is very formulaic. John 3.16 or Romans, 9, uh, Romans 10, 9 to 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is, um, uh, if, if, you, if you believe in your heart and you confess with your mouth, that's the gospel. Or John 3.16, for God so loved God. Whereas you can't see the gospel in, in, in the Old Testament. You can't see the gospel in the gospels. You only have to go to the gospel in the epistles. There's a problem. You can't see the full glory of the gospel. The gospel, though, constantly proclaimed is not at the center of the church's life. Remember I said that they see the gospel as the entry point. Now, say this with me. The gospel is not just the ABC of Christianity. The gospel is the A to Z of Christianity. Do you see? It's not just the entry point. It is the entire thing. So that when you are thinking of evangelism, yes, conversion, phase one. But when you are thinking about growing Christians in the faith, what do you use? You use the gospel. How do we do that? Because you can grow people in maturity by thinking about the cross, but also grow them in maturity by thinking about the hope to come. You can grow people in maturity by thinking about Jesus Christ risen from the dead or grow them in maturity by thinking about Jesus Christ who is the judge of the whole world. That's what Paul did. And that's what it means to be a gospel-centered church. 
that the gospel shapes everything about your ministry. The gospel shapes your counseling. It shapes your children's ministry. It shapes your singing. It shapes your preaching. It shapes how you, you behave towards other Christians that don't believe like you. It shapes your character. Not just this is how you get saved. It shapes your children's work. It shapes your parachurch organization. That's what it means to have the gospel at the center. So I'm going to close with those four examples, but I'll rush through them to show you this is how people did it in the Bible. First point, you find out that four of your church members are having a huge quarrel about whether they think the believers, they are, no, they have a huge quarrel because they, uh, they are thinking whether they or not they are believers. Because one group believes that we are called to obey, the t- uh, be, we are called to pay tithes, and the other one believes that we are not called to pay tithes. This is why they now think that one is not a Christian, this one is a Christian. How can you say we can't pay tithes? You are not a Christian. Why should you say we should be paying tithes? You are not a Christian. What do you do there in your church? Now, this issue is a secondary issue. It's not that it's not important, but it's not a primary issue, right? We're not talking about the Trinity. We're not talking about the humanity or divinity of Jesus. We're not talking about the exclusivity of the gospel. We're talking about something that is important. So how does Paul deal with this? Well, Paul deals with it in Romans chapter 14 and 15. Paul answers people fighting over whether or not they are permitted to eat certain kinds of food, which was bringing division in using the gospel. Paul didn't, did Paul say, why are you people fighting now? It's not good to fight. Look at you. Are you happy that you are fighting? No, it's not good. Look at your face. It takes 40-something uh, muscles to frown, and it takes just four to smile. Oh, yeah, smile. <laughs> That's what Paul says. Listen to what Paul says. For none of us lives, this uh, 14 verse 7, none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, the Lordship. And if we die, we die for the Lord. Why? Because we belong to the Lord. If he is Lord, we belong to him. But how did he become Lord? Through the gospel. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died. See another element. And returned to life. You see the third element? So that he might be Lord of both the living and the dead. And then in chapter 15, he then says, Accept one another then just as Christ has accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Do you see what he did? He preached acceptance even though there was a secondary issue. He didn't just say accept one another for accepting one another. Accept one another because Christ did not get, he didn't accept you when every, you got everything figured out. So apply the gospel that saved you. Apply it also to this particular issue. And notice how he brought the lordship of Christ. You belong to him. That guy belongs to him. So you need to accept him because Christ has accepted him. And we know that because Christ, having died and risen again, is now lord of all of them. Second, a husband is thinking of separating from his wife because she nags too much and constantly complains about headaches when he wants to have sex. What would you do? What would you say? Well, one thing you can do is always have Panadol extra ready for her. You know, that would deal with any headaches immediately. But I don't think Paul wanted to advocate that. Paul counsels people not to engage. Now, he, he addresses this in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7. And it's, it, it's, it, I won't say it's too much of a complex um, thing, but follow. 
Paul counsels people not to engage in sexual activity until they are married, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 to 20. But he ties that to the gospel. And then he tells the husbands and wives in like manner to apply this same kind of thinking to themselves now that they are married to each other like they are married to Christ. So follow. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Do you remember that? The Holy Spirit is given, the second phase of the benefit, isn't it? So do you not know that it is, uh, the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you receive from God, you are not your own, you were bought, redemption. You were bought at a price. Therefore, because now you are not your own, therefore honor God with your bodies. If you want to counsel people who are engaging in sexual immorality, don't say you will go to hell. There's a path for that. But tell them, look, this person that is saying, come and sleep with me, ask him, what price are you willing to pay? Because God paid the ultimate price in Christ. If you've not paid what Christ has paid, at least try to, try to even demonstrate it, then you can't have this. In other words, say, as Beyonce said, put a ring on it. In other words, Christ gave me all to purchase my body. You have to give me all. Sign on the paper if you really believe. That's what it means to, to, you know, to be married. You are giving yourself. So that's one. You can use the gospel to counsel that. So having then set that foundation, Paul in chapter 7 then says, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. It is not disconnected from what he said in chapter 6. He's, uh, he's made the, uh, uh, laid the foundation that in the gospel we are married to Christ. And so Christ has, uh, has authority over our bodies. So now when you talk about earthly marriage, I don't have authority over my body. And so even when I don't always feel like, in sacrifice to my wife, as Christ did, I would also lay down my body for her. Third. A dearly beloved sister is thinking of leaving the Christian faith because after the loss of her, Christ, of her Christian father, mother, and brother in the space of seven months, she's, conceived, she, she, and is in, she's convinced God doesn't care for her. So she's lost her father, mother, and brother in seven months. What would you do? What would you say? Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 14, explains to grieving Christians that they are to grieve with hope because dearly loved ones who've departed in Christ will resurrect in the same way as Christ did. Brothers and sisters, do, we do not want you to be uninformed about, notice that word, uninformed. We don't want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you don't grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. This is what is informing them. Don't be uninformed. This is what you should be informed by. Jesus died and rose again. You see the gospel there? And so we believe that God will bring Jesus with those who have fallen asleep. We had this exact kind of case a couple of months ago. In fact, all these cases are brought to you as cases we faced. Don't first say, notice Paul did not say don't grieve. This is what we do now. It is well. What do you mean by it is well? The person just lost three of her family members. What's, what's well about that? Then you say, don't cry now. Are you crazy? And then when we now want to then do the burial, what do we call it? A celebration of life. No. We came together because someone died. 
Death is an enemy. And we shouldn't smile at death. We shouldn't be throwing a party with death. Jesus Christ went to the, the tomb of Lazarus and did he throw a party, even though he knew what was going to bring him back from the dead. No, he cried because this isn't how he created the world. So he said, you should grieve. We're black. Even if someone died at the age of 120, God did not create the world for people to die. Funerals should remain funerals. But if you're a Christian, don't mourn without hope. That's the difference. That's where you bring in the hope. You don't force it and say, don't cry. You say, as you are crying, don't worry. A time is coming where he shall wipe away all tears. Paul says, we know this because Jesus died and rose again. So if they died in Christ, they will come back with Jesus. And finally, and this one, all of us probably, even though we're not facing it directly, we know exactly what I'm talking about. People in your church, in your ethnic church, are beginning to think of taking arms and retaliating against Muslims of the other tribe. After the 12th attack on your small village and their property in two years, they want to take up arms, especially because the head of the local government has done little to stop them because he himself is part of the ethnic tribe of the Muslims. What would you do? What would you say? We've had Christian leaders that have told people to take arms, Christians, Christian pastors of significant proportion in this country that have told people now they have to take arms and start killing. A particular pastor said, if a Fulani herdsman comes around here, cut his throat. They didn't tell me I saw it, and some of you saw it. He said, cut his throat if he comes around the church. Another pastor gathered his is, is thousands of his members. Okay, we're not going to take up physical arms, but we have spiritual power. And says, start to rain curses over them. And when you talk about it, you say, well, Femi, you are in Lagos, you don't know how, how it feels. And I'll say, totally true. I don't. But I know the God. What does Apostle Peter say? Peter, I want Peter to counsel those suffering under intense state persecution to think about what Christ did in the gospel on the cross. And that should affect how they respond to their enemies. 1 Peter 2 verse 20. But if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. Because to this you were called. Paul said, I'm called to be an apostle set apart for the, for the gospel. And so he's saying, because you are set apart for the gospel, you are also called to this. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live to righteousness. When you call people to suffer for the sake of the gospel, you're not calling them to smile. It's suffering. Part of what it means to be in the gospel is to take up your cross and follow Christ. When Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane contemplated what it was going to take to save us, he wasn't smiling. 
So we don't talk about this thing glibly. But when we say Christians should take up arms and fight back, we are going against the gospel. The person, Jesus, who told Peter himself, put your swords away when they came for him. We can't just say, well, you don't understand. Yes, we don't understand, but have you forgotten eternity? The problem why we can tell people to retaliate is that we have lost the gospel. Or we've redefined the gospel. He says, we should not retaliate because Christ didn't retaliate. Oh, they've not wiped out your whole tribe. That's why you're talking like this. Your rebels are still there. My own tribe, we are only 300, my friend. Please, as much as you're tied to your tribe, please be connected. You're a citizen of heaven before you're a citizen of this earth. They may wipe away all your tribes, but there will be every tribe and tongue represented in the, before the throne of God on the final day. Trust God. Don't fear the one who can destroy the body alone and then do nothing. But fear the one that can destroy both the body and the soul in hell. That is not given to any human being. It is not even given to Satan himself. Only to God. And he says, suffer as Christ did. Because this reflects the gospel. In a different context, suffering for Christ may come more intense for some people than others. But we are all called to be set apart to the gospel. So, friends, we've spoken about, this is the gospel theology, but at the same time, wanted to bring some application into it. You can build your church as a gospel-denying church, God forbid, as a gospel-redefining church, God forbid, as a gospel-affirming church, you need to do better, as a gospel, um, 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 uh, sorry, as a gospel-assuming church, you should do better, as a gospel-affirming church, you should do much better, as a gospel-proclaiming church, you are doing well. Please go one step further. Let us be gospel-centered. Let's know what the gospel is. Its subject is Jesus Christ. Let's see the object, we, and what are the benefits in the three different phases. And then let's see not how, just how we call people to repentance, but how we counsel people and help them look forward to Jesus Christ's return. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for feeding us with your word once again. We thank you for this gospel that saves us, that you know, regenerates us, that gives us a new status and gives us a new hope. And sometimes when we think about what eyes have not seen, ears have not heard, it seems so far away, especially in light of the things that we are called to suffer. But Father, increase our faith. Help our unbelief so that we can see the things that you have prepared for us and so that we can behave as Christ also behaved. Empower us by your spirit, O oh Lord, to do the things that we are meant to do. We ask all this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.